Okay, well, thank you for coming to the second class. And uh, before we begin, I will pray, and then we'll go over a quick little recap from last week, because we have some, some first-timers. So, I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you, and we thank you for who you are and what you've done for us. We thank you for your character that teaches us and instructs us. We thank you for your word. Lord, bless this time, bless our hearts and our ears to hear and listen from your word, so that we can glorify you in all that we do. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. 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 So, first week, we talked about the major theme of Scripture. And I kind of forcibly drew us to the conclusion that the major theme of Scripture, or a good theme to land on, is the kingdom of God. And Larry, actually, you brought up a very good option, which is the Trinity. And as we will see today, uh, the kingdom of God and the Trinitarian relationship, that is the relationship within the Trinity, really is the, the archetypal kingdom. So, you aren't, this is where last week when we said the kingdom of God is, a, is the major theme of the Bible, it's not like that's the absolute correct answer. Okay? That is a good explanation, a good theme, but Trinity or Trinitarian theology is another good theme. So, we're looking at the kingdom of God. That is the main theme of Scripture. Yes. Question. I'm a little off topic, but I'm, would you share your notes with us? I realized last week I thought, yes. oh, I need to take notes. Yes, and then I, I can. forgot all about it. And I see Larry here. Right here. So, I'll get you guys copies. <laughs> if you want copies of this, I I'll get you copies it. of this. Thank you. Actually, this is, um, I'm using a curriculum from, uh, it's, it's funny how far-reaching the CREC is in some ways. Uh, Ralph Smith. Uh, wrote this curriculum. He's working at the Covenant Worldview Institute in Tokyo, Japan. And he's one of like the most respected guys in the CREC. Never heard of him. Mike was like, here. I guess I'm a newbie still. Real quick, so we could tap into his name and... Ralph Smith. Okay. Yeah. If you just Google that and Ralph Smith Covenant Theology... Okay. It'll, it'll probably come up. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is, um, I think, Laura, you asked the question because I made a statement last week about um, like what God was up to, what the Trinity was up to before any creative activity. Right? And I said, that doesn't really affect us. I've been thinking about that. And I didn't mean to say that. That was one of those things where you in teaching and you know, whatever, you just say things sometimes and you're like, eh, I don't know if I really... Parse that out before I said it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, as we will see today, the what the Trinity was up to, if you if you want to use that term, before any creative endeavor, before uh, Genesis, before anything like that, before even the creation of the angels, uh, that does have significant bearing on all of creative activity going forward, because God is creating out of His own character. So the relationship that the Trinity shared from eternity past, they're creating out of that relationship. Eternity past, there's no such thing. Right. Well, that, what I mean is, what I mean is, before I know what creation, you mean, but right. it's like, In reality, there is no yeah. past, present, or future. How would you like eternity. to phrase it? How do you before time, before time. There's again? no con. We don't have yeah. the concept. But it is important. It's not like, oh, well, we don't know what he was doing and it doesn't matter. It's like, no, it, it, we do know because we learned from Scripture that they were uh, sharing in perfect love, perfect covenant, and that was the kingdom of God. That is uh, what I will call the archetypal 
kingdom of God. And so all of creation then bears that pattern, if you will. That's why, in, in some sense, in a very, very narrow sense, this is why God gives us his image, creates us in his image. There's, there's something more than just, oh, well, we look like him, right? It's that we are bearing the marks of the same type of covenantal kingdom that the Trinity had been experiencing the whole time. And again, the whole time is inadequate phrase. So, that was the first week. As you can tell, it was very simple, very easy topic. Yes. And we, we, discovered, we, we landed on the point that the kingdom of God is a good central theme, really from the words of Christ. So if we, we looked at a few passages, but I'll just read um, one from the gospel. So this is Mark chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we, when you look in, throughout the New Testament, you see that Christ's mission, during his missionary activity, He's proclaiming the kingdom of God, the coming kingdom of God. So that's where we took that understanding and we understand, okay, Christ's main objective was bringing and establishing and setting in place the covenantal kingdom of God. And so that is our theme of scripture. What, other, what else better than what Christ explicitly came to do? So, covenantal kingdom. That's what we're looking at. Now, the interesting thing is that when we start talking about kingdoms in our context, in the historical context, we obviously have monarchs and queens, and actually we have a very good example because recently Britain just got a king, right? Uh, king Charles was uh, crowned. I thought there would be a much bigger ceremony. I was hoping they'd bring out all the crown jewels and he'd wear the big, the big robe and the hat and wear, you know, $10 billion worth of jewelry because... That happens later. Does that happen later? Okay. They first have to put the lady in the ground. Right. right. Okay. I thought yeah, it was... There's a session in coronation. Okay. okay. A session is at St. James uh, Palace. Yeah. Okay, okay. I think they already later. did that part, right? Yeah. Okay. okay. Later. Yeah. Cool. So, um, so we actually get to kind of get a, like a live historical look at how they actually would have done ascension and coronation in even ancient times, because these traditions they're going to use are traditions that they've used for hundreds and, and, and potentially thousands of years. So um, it'll actually be a really neat thing to watch from a historical perspective. And it gives us an insight into how kingdoms work and how they're governed. Now, we obviously, being in America, we have a different way of thinking about these things. We have a constitution. So we have as Christians, sort of a, a good, uh, it's kind of a combination of the two, if you will. So we have a king, we have a monarch, who is Christ. But we also have a constitution. We have a law, which is, of course, the word of God. So the word of God is our constitution, or better yet, the covenant, that is the relationship that we have with God, that God secured for us, that, along with the word of God, are what we would call the constitution of the kingdom. So if you want to think about it that way, we have our monarch, 
We have our king, our ruler, who is Christ. And yet he sets in place for us on this earth a rule book, a law, a constitution. And that constitution governs, it oversees how and tells us how we are to live under that covenant. And that's exactly uh, one of the uh, brilliant things about our American constitution is the founding fathers uh, understood this to a degree that, um, and to various, various degrees, I'll say this. Some of them were much more uh, um, intent on copying this type of model and others were less. Uh, but the point is, they understood that they had a ruler who was above their rule of law, above the government, and that is God. And so the government is then in place to secure the rights of the people that they were given or that they have under God. So this is where the Constitution, even in our context, the Constitution is securing for us certain elements that are guaranteed through the covenant, through our relationship with the triune God. So even in our now very much broken uh, political and governmental system, um, that was the design from the beginning. So it's actually helpful for us because we have not only a historical perspective of kings and, and kingdoms and, and those sort of things, but also an immediate context of growing up in a country like this. So, the covenant, uh, it's a covenantal kingdom, and the covenant and the word of God can be seen as our constitution. That is, they define how the Trinity interacts with, the creation, with creation. So the constitution, the covenant, defines how the Trinity interacts and relates with creation. Does that make sense? This, of course, begs the question, what exactly is a covenant? Now, a covenant is a particular type of relationship. Um, can anyone think of a, another type of relationship that might be close to what a covenant is? Maybe in more of a legal or uh, monetary sense. Well, I'll just throw this out as an example. I live in an area where they have called CCNR, Covenants and Code Restrictions, and the deal is we pay them some money every year and they perform some services for us. Very good. And, and we generally will call those contracts. So the question is, is a covenant, or not is a covenant, is the biblical covenant akin to a, what was that? Marriage. Oh, marriage, yes. So marriage is... We'll get there, yes. She held up her ring, and I was like, was there a problem? Uh, um, is, a co is a contract the same as the biblical covenant? Well, as Larry, you just pointed out, a contract has a few features that are not exactly akin to the biblical covenant. One of those is that a contract is set up for the mutual benefit of both parties. So there's mutual benefit. It's sort of that... You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. So you pay the homeowners association or whatever it is. So that's what I'm going to soon find out. I don't know if we have HOA, but all sorts of taxes and fees and all sorts of stuff, right? And supposedly I get something in return for that, which is not, which is, which is not getting arrested by the IRS, right? So um, that's what a contract is. It's a mutually beneficial 
So if you have party A and party B, they're, they're, they have some sort of somewhat equal benefits from the contract. And the contract is only in place as long as both parties uphold their end of the contract. So we can see this is very uh, dualistic, very mutual, right? Uh, conditional, not mutual, I'll say this. It's very conditional. Mutual is a, um, a little bit better term to use. Um, so that is one possible explanation of a covenant. Is it like this, where we, God gives us something and we give him something in return, and as long as we keep it, as long as we keep it and he keeps it, then the, co the covenant maintains and, and is in, in place. But if he breaks it, then it's broken, and then if we break it, it's broken. So clearly we can see, well, this doesn't quite seem to hold up water in light of Scripture, right? And we're going to look at that. So, um, what will happen if you say that the covenant is conditional like this, and it's more like a contract? Uh, what you end up doing to the redemptive work or to salvation is you start really putting an emphasis, a more of an emphasis on our response or our activity in the redemptive plan. So if we say that my response to the conviction of the Holy Spirit is of equal um, force, of equal cause to the effect of salvation, then you are thinking of redemption or salvation under the covenant as a contract. That is, uh, Christ applies his atonement plus my will, right? Those things together equal salvation. Well, we being good reform types immediately go, I don't like that kind of language, right? So Christ plus my will, those two things are conditions. Both are equal conditions. Because, again, if we think of it as a contract, then both parties have to be following the contract for the contract to hold, for the result of the contract, for the benefits to hold. And we'd say this is the benefit that we get, and the benefit that Christ gets is worship, right? Love in return. Now, clearly we can say, okay, this is not quite holding water. And one of the, re obviously, we can look at various passages of Scripture, but one thing I would like to do, so I've got to use this degree at some point, <coughs> this uh, philosophy degree that I got. Okay, so, has anyone heard of the distinction, not you, because I talk to my dad about this stuff all the time, uh, the difference between necessary and sufficient conditions? Has anyone heard the distinction? Dan is nodding. Affirmatively. Okay, what, what do we got? What's a sufficient condition? Uh, or, excuse me, sorry. Necessary. We'll start with necessary. What's a necessary condition? Uh, something will not happen unless this is present. Correct. So, something will not happen unless it is present. Okay? So, that is the... Hey, you give me the philosophical definition. Now, <laughs> something will not happen unless this is present. There's... Okay, so, will not... We just need to write this down. If X, we'll say X is present. And sufficient? Not present. Is not present, yeah. 
Oh, is is int. <laughs> there we go. Sufficient, Dan. Uh, will happen if X is present. Yes. Will happen. So this is where um, will happen if X is present. Now on the face. We read the term necessary, and we think necessary is pretty important, and it is. But the distinction between these two in the realm of cause and effect, this is really what we're looking at, conditions. What are conditions that lead to an effect? What are causes that lead to an effect? So we were looking at salvation. Are there conditions, are there multiple conditions that lead to the effect of our salvation? of our redemption. That's where the contractual view of the covenant would say, yes, there are multiple conditions. There are necessary conditions. So necessary conditions, this is the philosophical definition, which is great for guys like me and Dan, but for the for most for the rest of us we'll say this. Necessary conditions are there's more than one condition. More than one condition. So a necessary condition means that you need more than one thing. You need X plus Y to equal something else. Those two things together are both necessary. So you can think of them as necessary ingredients. If you're making something, making pancakes, there are necessary conditions. There are necessary ingredients to create that thing. Okay? So if we looked at the covenant as a contract, we can say, all right, yeah, we need the two necessary conditions are Christ's redemptive work and my volition, my will, my desire, right? We say, okay, that is a necessary condition for salvation. What we're looking for and what the Bible actually teaches is a sufficient condition. And that is to say, sufficient conditions are, if it is essentially, if it's present, or it, it will happen if it is present. So if that condition takes place, then you have the result. Then you have the effect. <clears throat> so what we have in Scripture is that Christ, Christ's atoning work, is the sufficient condition. And obviously there are lots of people of other theological stripes who would th start throwing things at me right now for saying that. <clears throat> so what we are saying is that Christ's... Christ's atonement is sufficient. That is to say, he alone, put, the, put a cross, this is the sufficient and only condition needed. This is where you got to be careful. You can't say it's the sufficient condition that's necessary for salvation. We don't want to say that, right? We could say this Christ's redemptive work is adequate or sufficient, rather. It is sufficient to lead to redemption. Okay, so I've already got questions, you know, Go for in it. my head. If that's so true, uh -huh. then everybody's saved because he did that, right? The world is saved. Very good question. And that's obviously the question that Paul, right, when he says, when he's preaching on grace, and he says, well, uh, he answers, answers the rhetorical question, which is, well, if that's true, if God's just going to have grace on us, if, if we're all just quote-unquote, saved anyways. They were hearing the message. it's good news. Right, it's good news. Well, shouldn't we just go on sinning? I mean, and, and Paul says, by no means. So this is where, this is where we have to obviously parse this out further. 
that though our redemption is uh, sealed by the work of Christ, and it is a sufficient condition, we as Christians obviously still have, and this is where Mike was talking about this yesterday, so I'll, I'll stay. So, um, there's a mystery element to this. Okay? So, if we think about um, Christ's sufficiency in redemptive history, so if we have, if this is sovereign history up here, going linearly, and then this is our history, what we just call it. These are running congruently, and somehow, in God's providential and sovereign plan, the events that occur are happening sovereignly, are happening, uh, they are predestined, and yet at the same time, we are experiencing them as though we are making these decisions. So this, in here, how they correlate, how they actually match up, is a mystery to us. Scripture doesn't care to elaborate. God doesn't care to elaborate on how exactly those things are matching up. So yeah, obviously, if I drop this pen, it falls. Quote, unquote, that was my choice to do it. But we could say from Scripture, we can say theologically, God ordained that thing to come to pass. How that's possible, that's the mystery. So what we would say is Christ's work is sufficient. That is, we put supremacy on Christ's redemptive work. We had no part to play in our own salvation, so we cannot boast, right? So this, if we do, if we do have a part to play, then we can boast. We can say, well, I, I'm saved, and those people aren't because they haven't chosen to. They haven't made the mental effort that I have. Well, that gives us room to boast if it is, uh, if my element of free will is one of the necessary conditions. Then we have room to boast. Scripture says we have no room to boast because Christ alone has redeemed us. <clears throat> that yeah, that's a that's a real easy concise topic that one. All right. So, the essence of the covenant is that or sorry, we're getting ahead. All right. So, we'll erase this. Any questions? Now we're moving to the essence of the Any any questions on those two terms, necessary and sufficient? No, but are you going to answer the whole thing why the world's not saved? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Laura. You are. I will get that. Yep. That's not going to We're going to get there. <laughs> <laughs> yep. All right. So, um, we talked about that was, is the covenant contractual? We'd say, no, it's not contractual. So what then is the essence of the covenant? Well, the covenant, as we, I started to mention, the covenant is born out of the love of the triune God, the love within the triune God. So out of love, he chooses Israel, and he did not choose them because they first loved him. Rather, he chose them and was compelled, uh, and they were compelled to love him in response. So if we turn to... Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 13. You want to read it, Luke? Uh, what is it again? Deuteronomy 7, verses 6 through 13. 
For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations, and repays to their uh, face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. And because you listen to these rules and keep and do them, the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your grain and your wine and your oil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. There you go. So, God's covenant with Israel, his maintaining of the covenant, is the result of him being faithful to the promises that he made to Abraham. Yes, Laura. Says verse 12. If you yep. listen to these regulations and faithfully obey them, the Lord your God will keep his covenant. Very good. So that yes. that that begs the question, of course. Is it conditional or is it mutual? So this is where I want to distinguish between thank you, Laura. That was a perfect segue. Uh, is it I got <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. It's keeping you sharp, right? Uh, is it mutual? Is the covenant mutual or is it conditional? So I want to parse out those terms. So I'll read this. Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 through 5. It says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Now, there is a command to love the Lord your God. So this is where... What is the difference between mutual and conditional? Now, mutuality is, we might say, reciprocal behavior. Mutuality is reciprocal behavior. Well, what are we called to do in Deuteronomy 6, or what is Israel more specifically called to do in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 5? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and all of your might. Now that includes, uh, where is it? And because you listen to these rules and keep them, that includes that. So, mutuality is love for God, and because you love God, you obey His commands. The law is law. So you, you, 
obey his law. That is for Israel. So it comes from loving God first. Now, if it's conditional, if it's conditional, if the covenant is conditional, then we might say the love aspect isn't needed. And that's perhaps, that's precisely what we see in the New Testament. Christ is going around to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaders of Israel and showing to them that they, in fact, they're following the law. They're keeping the conditions, but they're thinking of it as conditional. As long as I make sacrifices, as long as I pray the correct prayers, as long as I keep face, you know, save face, so to speak, then I am keeping covenant. And Christ is saying, you, you have no love for God. You hate God. There is no love in you. The love of God has left you completely. So that is the distinction. Mutual, mutuality, is we are responding to the love that God has showed us with love in turn. And because of that, we then love to obey his law. Conditionally, we would say the love aspect is lost and we are only interested in the benefits of the law, the benefits of God's love by fulfilling those conditions. So then, if we, if we fall into the conditional one, we're not saved? Well, the Israelites were not justified simply by adhering to the law. That's the context in which we're talking about. it does say, it does not say that. To, I'm not trying to be different. No, no. I am trying to... Un- not trying, you just are? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's the tip, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, Laura, this is our first go-around. Um... If I can't understand this and I can't justify yep. it in my head, I can't. I won't accept it, right? I have to make sense of it myself. Right. Um, and maybe everybody else has made sense, so um, maybe I should stop. Everybody else is happening, but I'm not. Go for it. Because verse 12 of chapter 7 still says, If you listen to these regulations and faithfully obey them, the Lord will keep his covenant. He's only after this. is nothing about loving the Lord. Right, well, the six, chapter 6 is before that. I know that. So this is where... It says, yes, and it just said, that's a command. Love right. the Lord. Love the Lord your God. And then, so what we would say is, contextually, all the things that follow, well, not all, but most of the things that, in that context, that follow chapter 6, where it gives us the command to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. What then follows from that is presumed to be the result of so, this command. So we're so, saying that, <clears throat> because that comes first, love the Lord... So if you do that, then it doesn't say that, though. You're, 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 I hate to say you're reading into it, but you're making presumptions. But that the love that, the Lord that, your God that, with all your that, heart, that, mind, and soul, and strength is... That verse 12 of chapter 7 is conditional upon verse 6. I'm sorry, chapter 6, those two verses that you read. Right. Uh, yeah, and after, and we'd say, loving God, and this is where you're looking at just the whole of the Old Testament. There's very few places in the Old Testament where we'd say, okay, if you, as long as you follow the law, and your heart can be as corrupt as possible, your, your heart is full of sin and full of hate towards God, as long as you uphold the law in a physical, practical sense, then you are justified. That's precisely what Christ came and accused Israel of doing. That they were upholding the law in their own mind. They were creating even new laws more and more that they thought justified them. And Christ came and said, no, no, 
you're not justified by just holding to the law. The law itself, and this is where, to answer your question, Laura, of why, uh, why isn't everyone saved? So, uh, to, to quote the uh, late, great R.C. Sproul, what is wrong with you people? Uh, he says, in response to that question, right, which is really the problem of evil, uh, in, a, in a nutshell, why, isn't, why aren't all people saved? That's really the wrong question. The, the correct question is, why is anyone saved? Why is anyone saved? Right? But why is anyone saved? Why does Christ show, show grace to any of us? Because we understand in Scripture that we are all fallen and deserving of God's judgment. The law of God in the Old Testament, the law was inadequate for producing the type of righteousness in man that God demanded. Let me say that again. The, the law of God in the Old Testament was inadequate to produce the type of righteousness in man that satisfied the righteous requirements of God. And this is why Christ came. Because he was able and uh, he was capable and able of fulfilling the righteous requirements of God's law. So, what you have is... Um, it's not that God is unjust by not saving certain people. It's that He's merciful by saving anyone. Those who are not saved were already not saved. It's not like we start nat neutrally, right? We don't start in the middle and then we go through life and we end up over here, which is uh, not saved. So what have those that are not saved done to not be saved? Live their perfect life. No. What have they not done? Well, why? Because why should I be saved? I'm a sinner like everybody else. That's right. I'm, I'm Agreed. No difference in and there's no, there's, on the other side. There's That's nothing. A great foundation right there. Right. Yeah. So there's nothing. There's there's nothing that you've done to save yourself. It is purely purely the work of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Who has saved you. Now, you respond out of mutual love and honor for God, for the love that you've been shown. This is where the New Testament says that we love because he first loved us. Right? Our response to him, the proper response of the leading of the Holy Spirit, is faith. You don't drum up faith and then you're saved. Christ saves you. He sends his Holy Spirit within you to convict you of your sins. And then you have faith. So faith is the response of, or the proper response, I'll say it. It is the proper response. It's the right response. It's the nat uh, not natural. It's the uh, ir uh, irresistible response to the leading of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So every, it's not that everyone starts, so if this is all mankind, it's not like we start, woo, that's a way to write it. It's not like we all start in the middle and then sometime through our life we end up over here or sometime we end up over here. No, no. We all started in this category. Not saved. Not redeemed. This is why when, when Mike baptizes infants, right, we say, do you, we, we ask the parents, do you agree that this child was conceived in sin? Right? We say yes. Now, for, for a long time, certain people were like, is, is he saying that they just had an affair? 
Were they cheating on each other? Is that what he means? No. And Mike has had to clarify that several times. The point is, because of the curse of Adam, because Adam is our federal head, and now we are his descendants, we now share in the curse of the fall. So we are unjustified. We are not saved from birth. Now, obviously, we can argue, whoa, does that mean, you know, unborn babies and aborted children go to hell and things like that? That's a whole other can of worms. There's a whole other discussion on um, God's grace towards uh, the unborn and innocent. And then there's, you know, distinctions on what does innocence mean in the age of accountability and things like that. That's not what we're going to talk about here. But the point is, for mankind, it is very clear that we're not starting on neutral ground. We're starting over here. So to ask the question, well, why doesn't God just save everyone, is assuming. That's assuming that we're starting in the middle. That's assuming that we're starting on positive ground. That we're starting in a good, we have a good hand to begin with, right? That's why RC is, is correct when he says that's really the wrong question. The, the correct question is, if we're all here, if we all start here, it is only by God's grace. And why is it that God would be gracious to save anyone? And that's our testimony. We do not go around testifying that, well, I'm smart enough and I figured it out. And, and so I parsed out scripture and I, I figured it out and now I'm saved. No, our, our testimony is that I am a wretched sinner. I don't necessarily know why God chose to save me, but he did. And that's the point. That's the point that it is a free gift of grace that we are redeemed despite ourselves. Okay. I'll stop preaching. <laughs> I want to ask this clarification. Saved by grace through faith. Mm -hmm. How does that fit? Right. So saved. Save, yes. So saved by grace through faith. So this is where faith. Faith is the right response. It's the correct response. It's the irresistible response to God's grace. Does that make sense? So, faith is the irresistible response to being encountered, to receiving God's grace. That is why we can say formulas like saved by grace through faith. It's not that faith necessarily, our faith, that the faith that I weld up within me is the condition that's causing grace to come upon me. It's that grace is being shown to us. It's being given to us. It's being applied to us. And our response by the Holy, through the power of the Holy Spirit is what we call faith. That's what faith is. It's the response to God's grace. just said, if you love the Lord, and Jesus accuses the Pharisees or the current or people of the current generation of not loving God. So how does that happen? You didn't say faith. Yep, perfect. All right. And you, you, she's like keeping me on track here. Uh -huh. All right. So first John, we'll let's see what time it is. Okay, all right. We'll have to we'll we'll cook it. We'll hit the gas pedal here. All right. First John chapter four through uh, four verses eighteen through twenty one. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love his brother whom he has seen, for he who does not love his brother who he has seen 
cannot love God who he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. So, we would say, the faith that we have, which is born out of the proper response of grace, is a loving response to God. So this is where faith is not merely, I understand it, I know how to formulate it. Faith is coupled with a reaction and a response of love. When we are saved, when we're redeemed, when we feel the love of Christ, we then love him in turn. We aren't say I, I would say they're scarce to find a Christian in here or anywhere who would say what that their testimony is that, oh yeah, I figured it out, but I didn't really feel God's love until later on. It's like, no, no, when you experience salvation, when you experience the love of Christ, our natural inclination, our natural response is we feel that love in turn. We love God in turn. And this is precisely what's happening here. The person who is loving God, who has experienced God's love, and now is loving God, is required, dare I say, will necessarily love his brother in turn, because this is where that uh, idea of when we experience something, when we experience something from God, it's right for us then to extend that to other people. When I talked about hospitality, right? We, we experience hospitality, we experience these certain characteristics of God, and then our response, what God wants us to do, is then to not only reciprocate that to Him, but to reciprocate that to others, to one another and to the lost. Does that make sense? So are you talking grace and regeneration in the same term? Yeah, I'm, when, when I say grace, I'm meaning uh, the, salva- the salvific um, yeah, work that Christ uh, uh, gives to us, that applies to us through his work, and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So I'm kind of, I'm kind of coupling it all together, right? So God's long-suffering and patience with us now then we're called to love our neighbor with that same type of patience and long-suffering. Obviously, we can't save our neighbor, right? We're not going to go be crucified for our neighbor, so to speak. But we can, we can, in some sense, lay down our lives for them. We can serve them and learn from and emulate the life of Christ for our fellow brother, for our neighbor. Does that make sense? I think we'll have to end it there since uh, we've got about eight minutes till. So, yeah, really simple stuff. Yeah, I got it. All right, very good. Cool. Well, we'll, we'll finish. Uh, what, next week is going to be very much kind of the same topic. We're still looking at what exactly is a covenant. So we'll wrap up that. And then going forward, we're going to look at the various types of covenants in Scripture. Very good. Thank you. Thanks for coming.